Good morning, Highland. My name is Shane Hughes. I'm one of the ministers here. And if you're new, as Robert said, I'm glad you're a part of us. And I, I Jeff had powerful words about uh, what it means to kind of leave stuff behind. We're in the season of Lent, and uh, the season of Lent is, 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 an, is, a, is a time of intense spiritual focus. As we get our hearts, our bodies, our souls, our minds ready for Easter, to celebrate resurrection. And this, this is a great time to kind of do that emotional and spiritual work uh, to figure out what do I really need to carry and what needs to be left behind. Um, another way to ask that question is, is what is mine to carry now? And what, what can I leave back? And so we're going to continue our, our, our exploration of the Sermon on the Mount. And the reality is the Sermon on the Mount can feel confusing because it, it seems like Matthew is kind of veering from topic to topic as he's recording Jesus' wisdom. Uh, last week we were talking about murder. And this week we're going to start off by talking about lust. And then we're going to move to adultery and divorce. And then we're going to move to swearing. But really today there's a straight line that runs all the way through those topics um, we're not talking about intimacy as much as we're talking about covenant and so what I want you to try to do as we, as we, as we journey with Matthew up the mountain is listen for what covenant feels like try to hear what Jesus speaks when he speaks of connection Jesus begins in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already convicted, committed adultery in, her, in his heart. So if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Because it's better for you to lose one eye than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand causes you to sin, your right hand... Cut it off and throw it away. Because it's better to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, it was also said, whoever divorces their wife, let him give them a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, anyone who divorces their wife, except for on the ground of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard it said... To those in ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, because it's the footstool of God, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you can't even make one hair white or one hair black. Therefore, let your word be yes, yes, and let your no be no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful to be here today. I'm grateful for this moment that has penetrated into my heart, gone deeper than my mind. I'm grateful for worship that moves my body to stand to raise my hands to praise you. Father, we bring our whole selves to you now. Every little bit and part of us, the parts that we're proud of and the parts 
that we keep private. Every part of us is brought to you. Father, we ask that you bless us. Bless every part of us. And as we open our hearts to your word, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching, that I might speak your truth and love to these, your people. It's together that the church says, amen. All right, so I want to begin off by starting by saying, like, look, Jesus is using hyperbole here. When he says, gouge an eye, cut off a hand, he is definitely using hyperbole to make a point, not another law. And so we have to read this text in context to understand that what Jesus, Jesus is not saying, if you have to sin, what you need to do is be more drastic than the Pharisees and the scribes around you. He's just trying to make a point about how serious sin actually is. I love how Tim Keller begins to talk about intimacy in relationships. Tim Keller says that, that sex is not a, a consumer commodity, but a covenant commodity. Now, you may ask yourself, what's, okay, what's a commodity? I've heard that word, but I don't know what it is. A commodity is a good. It's a thing. It's something that you can buy and sell. Uh, intimacy is not a consumer good. It's a covenant good. And there's a huge difference in this. So let me tell you what a consumer good is. Let's say you go to a restaurant, and you like the food, and you have a good meal. That's a good consumer. You pay for it. They give you food. That's a, that's a consumer transaction. But if you were to go across town and find somewhere that has better food, maybe even a cheaper price, you have no obligation to remain loyal to the first restaurant. You can go to the second restaurant, right? It's just as good, even better. The same is true about gas. You have no loyalty or uh, commitment that you have to make to some gas station that's on some part of this town. If you found cheaper gas somewhere else, you should go buy it. My in-laws spend hours finding the cheapest price of gas and will veer to go purchase it because they understand what gas is. It's a consumer good. If that re restaurant fails a health code inspection, you don't have to go back, right? You're not bound to that restaurant. But there are other things that can only exist within covenants. Like basketball. Basketball only exists within covenants. Now, I don't know the rules of basketball really well, uh, but you may know them inside and out. So I'm going to use a different sport instead. The, the commitment, the covenant that can only exist is like cricket. There was this one time I was uh, with my boys. We were at a playground, and we looked across the way, and there were a bunch of guys over there, and they were playing cricket together. And we were kind of watching the game, and it looks kind of like baseball, but the rules are very different. Or, or maybe you've, you've gone and you've, you've seen rugby on like ESPN 5 or 6. It kind of looks like American football. It's not exactly the same. Now, let's do a thought experiment for just a minute. Let's imagine for a moment that those cricket players came over to me and said, Hey, our coach hasn't shown up. The referee isn't here. Would you mind being the ref for our cricket match? And I, of course, would be like, sure, I'll do that. I don't know how to play cricket, but here, give me the whistle. And, and I would take the whistle, I would blow it the first time, and then I have no idea what to do the whistle ever after, right? Like, I have no idea the rules, I have no idea how points are made, I don't know what's a foul or not a foul, and some cricket players are going to figure out that I don't know what I'm doing, and they're going to start violating rules because they can get away with it. Other cricket players, they're going to feel frustrated. I mean, if this was rugby, people are starting to get hurt and damaged, injured, because I don't know what's going on. 
I don't know when to call a foul. I don't know when not for it to exist. And until like the, the real coach or the real referee shows up and takes that whistle out of my hand, the field is going to be chaos. Because some things only exist within covenants. There's some promises that you make because you have to agree on the rules. I'm not really talking about baseball here. Intimacy was not created just for pleasure, but for mutual self-giving toward a deep and permanent union that creates character and even a new human life. And in intimacy outside of marriage, we maintain our independence and fail to give our whole selves to the other person. There are some things that can only work when they're a covenant good. Because the commitment outside of those covenant promises ruins the effect of intimacy. Intimacy was created for persons to say non-verbally but powerfully to one another, I belong completely and exclusively to you. And intimacy uh, must not be used for anything less than that or you're not respecting the power of sex of respecting sex power, depth, or force. And so when Jesus is speaking about lust, what we have to realize is that what he's talking about is the most harmless of the deadly sins. This is what Aquinas called it, which is kind of like saying the least fatal way of dying. You're still going to die, but it's the least way to get there. And Aquinas considered thus the least destructive because more often than not you're, you're led into that people enter it because of weakness not out of malice people got carried away because of curiosity or powerful desires and while lust is a big destructive deal the true power of lust is habitual is its habitual nature that erodes the spirit and shame carries them away drives people away from the community that can support them you see, what, what happens is that lust treats sex like a consumer good, not a covenant good. Frederick Beekner said, contrary to the Victorian prig, the Victorian stuffing one, sex is not a sin. And contrary to Hugh Hefner, sex is not salvation either. It's like nitroglycerin. It can be either used to blow up bridges or heal hearts. And the reason why Jesus is so dead serious about this is that lust is destructive. Lust strips away intimacy and community from relationships. It's this it's reductive impulse. Pleasure for one's own sake, and that's all it is. Most powerfully, whether lust happens in the mind or it's carried out with another person, it strips the imago dei. It, it strips the image of God away from the other. And that other, whether that's a, that's a person, a picture in a magazine, or a video on the internet, or just a fantasy about a stranger in a coffee shop, they're no longer who God created them to be, full of gifts and brokenness, but just a thing for you to use and discard, a commodity. People being treated by one another as disposable Kleenex is in my opinion an excellent definition of hell. But real intimacy has a really hard time trying to compete with imagination. Uh, this is going to sound like a shock to you, but I have bad breath in the morning. And sometimes I'm grouchy or I'm tired. 
Sometimes I don't appreciate the way that my spouse loves me. And, and, and I can't compete with the idealized husband in her imagination. I mean, this idealized husband that she thinks about is probably named Francois, and he's 6'4", and he's a dessert chef. Like, I can't even compete with my own imagination of her imagination, right? And, and, and my spouse can't compete with my airbrushed surreality either. Razor burn, cellulite, receding hairline, stretch marks, and all those thousands of other quirks aren't supposed to be the things that turn you off from your spouse. They're the things that make the power of stark, naked intimacy of covenant relationships so powerful. That we are loved, completely loved, loved handles and all. Intimacy gives us freedom. That intimacy gives us freedom to be creative and to be silly, to dance even though we don't know how. Because in that space, you are loved. And so that's why Jesus says it doesn't really matter if the action is in your head or carried out with another person because the damage of dehumanizing someone else into an object has already been done. Sex without humanness is like eating food with no calories. And there's a very similar vein between lust and gluttony. They're kind of, they're partners in a lot of ways. And I think we try to rationalize our actions by playing some sort of mind-body game as if our spiritual self were somehow disconnected to what happens to our physical self. You only have to ask people that have actually turned intimacy into commodity work how much effort it is to make that disassociation. That's work that takes years to heal from. Like gluttony, when we misuse something pleasurable habitually, we lose the ability to enjoy it at all. And the more single-mindedly we pursue a good feeling and not a person, the less likely we're going to find it satisfying. And then intimacy loses its flavor. And you have to escalate more and more and more bizarre experiences until it's just a caricature of God's intent. And then Jesus moves and, and pivots slightly and begins to speak about divorce. And I'm not going to talk much about divorce in this context because I don't believe that this auditorium is the right space for that. As Trey said, there's some things that are sacred. There are some things that are holy, and, and this is holy ground. And, and the problem is that there are too many experiences in this room. There are those who marriages right now are on the rocks, and they need a word of encouragement to hang on and to throw everything into it, to work hard, to keep that covenant. And there are those who bear the scars that need a word of grace. And each group, if we speak about this, is going to hear the wrong message. So instead of speaking of that, about that, let me speak of, of covenants. This is what Jesus says we, we need to do instead is the painstaking work of trying to keep our promises. We live in a litigious culture. You can be sued for anything. You, there are contracts that bind to a, a third arbi, a party arbitration. That's what you, you agree to when you click that box without reading the terms of service. It means that you can't sue. Companies have to protect themselves from this. And it creates this keen lack of trust in the stranger or, or even a neighbor. I had a friend, Lance, who was, who was kind of a, he was a contractor that didn't have a license. 
He was a handy person, handyman. And, and he was able to do all sorts of things around the house. And I had this work that needed to be got done, so I was going to hire my friend Lance to help with that. And my other friend, who was a real estate agent, he said, no, be careful about hiring Lance. And I said, why? I said, because he doesn't have a license. I said, so? He does great work. And he told me a story about one of his clients. And one of his clients had had a, a guy like Lance, doesn't have a license, but is skilled. He had installed this hot water heater in the attic. And that was kind of an unusual thing to do in the city that we lived in. It didn't often go there. It usually goes in the garage. And, and he had done good work. And like 15 or 20 years later, that hot water heater had sprung a slow leak and had begun to rot around this part of the attic. And then one day, the, the hot water heater just broke straight through the ceiling and landed onto somebody's like antique end table. And sure enough, my friend's client, who had sold the house 15 years ago, had moved on, had thought nothing about that place for a long time, got this letter in the mail and noticed that they were being sued because they hadn't hired a licensed contractor to do the work. And it really made me pause for a minute. Do I want to help my friend Lance with a job? Do I trust that I, this work isn't going to come and bite me 15 to 20 years later? It really eroded my sense of, of community. And Jesus says, let your yes be yes. I, I try not to lie, and it's not because I'm a naturally honest person, but because my memory is so poor, I have a really hard time keeping my story straight. And so for the life of me, if I just tell the truth, it's going to be easier. Because at least I can remember one reality instead of trying to remember two. But trying to tell the, trying to tell the truth is, is an act of, it's a spiritual practice of humility. Because i got to be honest with you, I have, I have an image that I want you to think that I am. And then I have this image that I really am. And, and telling the truth is this exercise of saying, actually, this is authentic me, not the one I want you to see. And that practice does some good things for my soul. We live in a world that has narrative spin and alternative facts and, and a post-truth culture. And in, in, in that context, in all of that society, you know, Jesus just says, be honest. Tell the truth. Be the kind of person that is so reliably dependable in what you say, you have no need to intensify your promise. And intensifying your promise has existed at least since Jesus, but I'm certainly it's happened well before because he speaks about that. He says, don't swear on heaven. Don't have to make it even more true than it is. Don't swear on earth. Don't have to make it more true than it is. Don't swear on the, the, the temple. Don't swear on the city of Jerusalem. And don't even swear on your head because you can't control all that. And we have the same thing. People say, no cap. I'm telling the truth. You know, no lie. If you want to intensify it a little more, you got to say for real because you're saying something and people look at you and you begin to doubt. And when I was a kid, you had the same thing, right? I said, no, man, I put that on God. If you wanted it to intensify beyond God, you said, I put that on my mom. And you don't need to intensify your promise if your yes is yes and your no is no. And I think you probably know someone in your life that has that, that kind of dependency, dependability. That kind of person that you trust what they say. 
If they're going to do it, it gets done. If they say they're not going to, you don't wait for them. For me in my life when I was growing up, that was my dad. If he said yes, he meant yes. If he said no, he meant no. There was this one time we were on a, I was with the scouts, and we were on this uh, 11-day canoeing trip, and we were canoeing through these lakes and rivers and portaging over hills. It was an amazing time, but I had to leave like day seven. I couldn't stay the whole time. And so my dad was going to come pick me up, and they'd pick this spot out in the middle of nowhere. It was over this hill. So the scoutmaster and I, we, during lunch while everybody else was eating, we climbed over this hill and over to the other side, and we, we found this country road where we were going to wait for my dad to come. And we were supposed to meet him at noon, and we got there at about 11.50, but it came about 12.30, and my dad hadn't come yet. And my scoutmaster was beginning to get nervous. Because he, he had to get back to the, the rest of the troop. And so about 12.45, he looked at me and said, Look, I'm really sorry, but you're going to have to come back with me. I can't leave you here. I can't leave them there. You're just going to have to finish the trip with us, and we'll figure it out when you get home. And in my heart, I knew. I, I, in my heart, I knew. My dad is going to show up. You don't have to worry about this. Because when my dad said yes, he meant yes. And when he said no, he meant no. And this was an era before, you know, cell phones or GPS— and I'm certain what happened is trying to figure out which country road to turn on. He had made a wrong turn and he had to backtrack a little bit. But I knew my dad meant yes when he said yes when I heard the whine of his Audi engine before I could see him coming over the hill. I heard that whine and I stood up. I put on my backpack because I knew my dad was going to be there. Now, honesty is not a license to be cruel or to be rude. And keeping it real is only going to take you so far. So instead, Jesus says, let your yes be yes, your no be no. And be slow to step into covenants. I think let your no be no means you have the courage to say no. There's a lot that you can't can predict. There's a lot that you can't control. And this isn't the same as hopelessness or pessimism. Sometimes clear and kind no's are the best possible thing that can happen to your life. Like, you don't have to get married to someone just because you've been dating a long time. You can say no. You don't have to stay at a bad or attack toxic job. In our culture, you can leave whenever you want. Just say no. Just quit. Don't covenant to bad ideas or dishonest people. But can you imagine what it would be like if we were the kind of people that were so reliable that we were trusted like I got to tell you, this kind of honesty, this could change the world. In, 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 a, in a world of, of no's or maybes, lies, half-delivered and broken promises, God's covenant with us is powerful. And you see this throughout the entirety of Scripture. You see this from Genesis chapter 3, when God covenants with with. Adam and Eve as they have to figure out what's next in their life as they leave the Garden of Eden. We see this in Genesis chapter 12 when God covenants with Abram. And God makes a promise to Abram that Abram doesn't ask for. He says, I'm going to give you descendants like you wouldn't believe. More than the stars in the sky, more than the grains of sand at the beach. You wouldn't believe the way that I'm going to bless you. But this is hard for Abram to believe because he's old and his spouse is old and he's not likely to have any kids. And so God says, I'm going to make a promise, and I'm going to keep it. And then there's this very odd story in Scripture. Abram, he, he gathers these different animals, and he cuts them in half, and he divides them, and he makes kind of a path in front of him. 
Now to us, this seems like a really strange behavior, and he, he, he keeps the birds of prey away from these animals. But in the ancient Near East, this, this makes total sense. Everybody knows what this is. Abram's about to sign a contract. And in the ancient Near East, this is what you do. You divide these animals up, and then you'd walk with someone through the, the pathway that's created, and it's a symbol. It's a way to say, hey, let this happen to me if I break my word. So, and you'd make a contract for all sorts of things. I'm going to deliver X many goods for Y amount of price. You're going to have this. I'm going to have this. Contracts like that happen all the time. But what's unusual about Abram's contract with God is that he's waiting and waiting for God to appear, and then he, he falls asleep. And while he's asleep, he has, he has a vision. And in the vision, there's this smudge pot, this smoking pot that he can see. He knows it's God. And God moves through the contract. God makes the covenant. And as we read this, this whole thing is weird to 21st century eyes and years. And so we don't notice what an ancient Near Eastern person would notice. What they would notice is that Abram doesn't walk through the animals. God made the contract, and God's going to keep it. It's up to God to keep the promise. It's not up to Abraham. In fact, the, next, the rest of the story of Abraham is, is Abraham pressing against that covenant that God made, or breaking the covenant, or making it impossible for God to keep the covenant seemingly. And every time, God is faithful. Over and over again, God is faithful. And Israel, that story is going to continue with the nation of Israel. Israel is going to be compared to a cheater by the prophets or to a vorsee by the prophets or a liar by the prophets. But God doesn't change. God's commitment doesn't blink. There is not one ounce less of God's love to Israel than there was the moment he made that promise to Abraham. The story is carried through Israel and is made complete. The law is made complete. It's finished in Jesus. Nothing you can do will separate you from God's love. Nothing you can do can ruin that intimacy. And that intimacy, it gives you freedom. It gives you freedom before God to be your complete and authentic self. All the good parts and all the, the private parts, all of the, the parts you love to show in public and the parts you try to hide, all of that is known by God and despite who you are, God loves you anyway. So let your yes be yes and let your no be no and let it all be clear and kept. Can you imagine what it would be like if we were people that lived into that intimacy, who were known and loved. Can you imagine the freedom that you would have with others if you had that kind of relationship with God? May we as a, we as a church strive to live into that promise, the one that God has already made with Jesus that you have access to today. Would you please stand up? for our benediction. Highland, this week, may you lean into the intimacy that you have with God. May you know and be known by the creator of the universe that loves you regardless of who you are. 
And may that intimacy give you freedom to love, to be silly, to dance even though you don't know how. Go with God's love and go in peace.